morning, friends. Uh, of all the Christian virtues that, that we value, wouldn't you say that forgiveness is at the top of the list? I think so, not just because we enjoy relationships with people, even though we wrong them from time to time and receive their forgiveness, but the, the foundation of our faith, our found, the foundation of our relationship with God, the one who has forgiven us, is that virtue, forgiveness. We value forgiveness as Christians because that is why we can relate to God, isn't it? It is indeed. If God were not a forgiving God, we would, we would never be forgiven. We'd be lost in our sins and separated him forever, destined to pay the penalty of our own sins. But forgiveness is one of God's primary qualities and hence at the top of the list of Christian virtues. God in his mercy and loving kindness forgives our sins. He reconciles us to himself and grants us faith to believe, which results in being united to his son, Jesus Christ, through, for now and eternity. Because of this, we who have received this divine kindness, now listen, are expected to extend that forgiveness to those who have wronged us. This is what the book of Philemon is about. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, to the image of God, and we are never more godlike than when we forgive one another. Forgiveness for the Christian is not just a virtue or, or a good idea or a gracious thing to do for those who have wronged us. No. Forgiving others is commanded of every believer. In fact, Jesus made it clear that unless you forgive others, God will not forgive you. <clears throat> Since forgiveness is a primary attribute of God and Christians are being conformed to his image, then unless we forgive others, it's highly unlikely that we have ever been forgiven by God. That's a motivating thought. Ephesians 4.32, which you've already heard and seen this morning, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is a command. It's a directive from the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit. There is the theme for the book of Philemon right in front of us in Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So why are we going to study and preach Philemon here for the next couple weeks? Well, you can read it in five minutes. It's not that impressive. There's no deep doctrinal points in the book. There is no teaching on church government, elder qualifications, eschatology, eschatology or missions. There's no rebuke of false doctrine. There's no rebuke of false teachers. This is just a personal letter from Paul to his friend Philemon. Many have wondered why this epistle is included in the canon of Scripture, but I hope before the day is out, you will recognize as those who put together the canon its value before we are done. 
This letter to Philemon and the letter to Colossians go hand in hand. And by the way, after we get done with all the one chapter books of the New Testament in the next few weeks, we're going to dive into Colossians um, for a couple years and see what the Lord will teach us through that book. But Philemon and Colossians are cousins, not, okay, listen to me, they're the books related. Colossians isn't the name of a man. Uh, The book Philemon and the book Colossians are closely related. In fact, they were written at the same time by the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison and delivered at the same time to the church in Colossae and to Philemon from a man named Tychicus and Onesimus. All right, so this will become important to you in a minute. The challenge of this story about reconciliation, about forgiveness, uh, is that because Onesimus, who was uh, Paul's focus in this letter, because he had run away from his owner, he was a criminal and had most likely stolen from Philemon to boot. If you see in verse 18, Paul's willing to pay back whatever Philemon had stolen in the book of Philemon. And Roman law stated that a slave, which described Onesimus, uh, was liable to prosecution, and in this case, running away from the slave owner and stealing from the slave owner, the death penalty was in play. So that's, that's the challenge here that Paul's trying to navigate for the sake of Onesimus and, of course, uh, the glory of God. The players in this book that you just heard read to you are Paul, of course, the great apostle who wrote it. He was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. There's a lot to learn just from this introduction, a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine, a lot about Paul, and a lot about what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us just in this introduction. He begins this personal letter with the unique way of saying, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Why this unique introduction here? Well, there are at least two reasons I think Paul uses this in his introduction. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. First of all, Paul wanted Philemon, he wanted his family, and the church that met in his house to know that he was not a prisoner of Rome, though he was a prisoner in Rome. It wasn't Rome that had put him in prison. It was Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He was a prisoner for his master, Jesus Christ. It was because of his service to Jesus Christ that he was, in fact, in jail. He was in jail because of his love and commitment to and service to Christ. His negative circumstances had been ordained by Jesus Christ to accomplish his will. And so in every sense of the word, he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now think about your own circumstances. Is your view of your circumstances that they are ordained by Christ to accomplish his will? Well, my circumstances are pretty bad. Well, how do you think Paul's were in a Roman prison? It wasn't the luxury house arrest 
that you may have been talked about. This was a different place that he wrote from, most likely a dungeon underneath the city surface, next actually to the city sewage system. He was a prisoner in that location for Christ Jesus to accomplish the purposes of God, not only in all the epistles that we have in our copy of the New Testament, but in his own life and the life of his fellow prisoners and even Caesar's household who came to faith because he was there in prison. So how are you viewing your circumstances? Do you see your circumstances as bad as they may be to accomplish the purposes of God in your life and the lives of those around you? Are you seeing it that way or are you bucking under your circumstances? So the first reason that Paul used this introduction was he wanted Philemon and his family in the church to know that he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus in all senses. Secondly, Paul introduced himself in verse 1 as a prisoner for Christ to help Philemon see that what Paul was about to ask was coming from someone who had no ulterior motives. <laughs> Paul meant to soften his brother, his friend Philemon's heart towards Onesimus. And he knew that if Philemon would just hear his circumstances, he would have no reason not to doubt Paul's intentions and to respond positively to Paul's request. Because there's no way that Philemon's circumstances were worse than Paul's. The second player is Philemon, the namesake of this book. He was a wealthy slave owner in the town of Colossae, um, which is near Ephesus and a prominent member of the church at Colossae. And he may have been a prominent member for a few different reasons, but one was because they met in his house. This is how we know he was a wealthy man. His house was big enough to house the church in the town of Colossae. Philemon was good and gracious, even as a slave owner. And we could get into um, the rights and wrongs of slavery in biblical times, but nevertheless, uh, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire and very few Roman citizens in comparison. But Philemon had a wife, and she's listed here, Appia, and had a son, Archippus, and they were included in the greeting. Philemon not only knew of Paul, he personally knew Paul. Paul had led Philemon to Christ in Ephesus years before this letter was written. And then later, Philemon became a member of his hometown church at Colossae. And as the slave owner of Onesimus, he had certain rights of ownership, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. At the time, Onesimus was not a believer, and he ran away to Rome in hopes of disappearing into the masses of that huge city. At Rome, Onesimus encountered Paul, and somehow the Apostle Paul led him to Christ. It didn't take long for Onesimus to become very valuable, a partner in ministry with Paul, and important to him as a personal friend. Even while Paul was in prison, Onesimus was his right-hand man. Onesimus fulfilled the meaning of his name, which is useful. Look at your copy of Philemon, look at verse 11. 
This is a little um, insight into Paul's humor. In verse 11, he says, formerly he, speaking of Onesimus, was useless to you, now he's useful. He's using the name Onesimus. That was the meaning of his name. It's a play on words, obviously, uh, but this is Onesimus. He was now a converted runaway slave who desired to make things right with his master Philemon. He desired his master's forgiveness. And he went to the apostle Paul who had led him to Christ. We're not sure when, but Paul had led him to Christ and he knew that Paul knew his master Philemon and he figured that Paul could help him walk or navigate this road. So in God's providence, which, by the way, includes this book being in your copy of the Bible for your encouragement, especially if you have struggled forgiving someone in your life. But in God's providence, Onesimus ran away to Rome before he knew Christ. With Philemon's money, he went there to disappear, but had a divine appointment with Paul. How many times do those running from God providentially run right into his arms? A few of you, if I know your testimony. Think of the sovereignty of God in this story. Onesimus runs away to Rome to disappear into the crowds only to be found by Christ and sent back to Colossae to be forgiven and reunited with Philemon. What a story of grace and forgiveness. Then most likely, listen, then most likely to become one of the greatest Christians that Colossae and Ephesus has ever produced. When Ignatius, the great first century martyr, um, was awaiting his execution, he wrote letters to some New Testament churches, including Colossians, Colossae rather, or Ephesus. And when he wrote the letter to Ephesus, he referred to the great bishop of Ephesus, Onesimus. What a story of grace and forgiveness. What I want to show you this morning for your encouragement and edification is first of all, the identifying marks or identifying qualities of a forgiver, someone who forgives. Uh, This sermon series in Philemon will take two weeks. Uh, Next week I'll cover the, the following two points. Um, which are the identifying conduct. So we have the identifying marks, and then next week the identifying conduct of a forgiver and the identifying motivation of a forgiver. But let's look now at the identifying marks of a person who forgives, a forgiver. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 closely. So besides becoming like Jesus, who said while he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, uh, why does God want us to be forgiving people? Besides becoming like Jesus, who is the forgiver, why does God want us to be forgiving people? Here are some ideas. from the negative standpoint. 
He wants us to be forgiving people because first of all, unforgiveness traps you in your unhealthy past. Unforgiveness traps you in your unhealthy past. You will cycle round and round in your mind the pain that was caused you. That wound won't heal without forgiveness. That open wound just causes you frustration upon anger and resentment um, and grows to the point where it steals your joy. But when you forgive, all that is released and you're released from that trap. God wants you to be a forgiving person because he doesn't want you to live in a trap of your past. Secondly, God wants you to be a forgiving person because unforgiveness causes bitterness to grow. Because your wound won't heal, you become increasingly bitter towards the person that wronged you. Bitterness is, is like an infection that unless it is lanced will become more and more sore and more and more dangerous to your health. My mom once told me that as you grow older, you either become bitter or better. Which is it going to be? Bitterness becomes debilitating. It skews your outlook on life and distorts reality. It will make you impatient, unkind, and bring about thoughts of revenge which do nothing but melt your brain. It ruins relationships beyond the person who hurts you and to many of those who are living innocently around you. But when you forgive, all those negative emotions and feelings are replaced by God with love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Sounds something or exactly like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? In Galatians 5. Next, God wants you to be a forgiving person because unforgiveness is Satan's playground. It's Satan's playground. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, listen to this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give, listen, no opportunity to the devil. In other words, you give opportunity to the devil if you go to bed angry. If, if you go to bed having not forgiven the one who wronged you, 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 you give Satan a, a foothold, an opportunity. And of course we know that the sin of unforgiveness is commanded to be left behind in Ephesians 4.32. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.10 and 11 about unforgiveness being Satan's playground. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan wants you to hold on to bitterness. He wants you to hold on to unforgiveness because it keeps you right where he wants you. Ineffective and unproductive in the Christian life. Fourthly, God wants us to be forgiving people because unforgiveness interrupts fellowship with God. And he wants to be in fellowship with you, Christian friend. And when you have an unforgiving spirit, when you have unforgiven sin, 
from those around you, it interrupts your fellowship with God. If you live with a known sin, which unforgiveness is, the Holy Spirit is grieved and suspends his intimacy with you. He doesn't just say, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Go ahead and remain unforgiving. No. He withdraws and suspends his intimacy with you. You cannot be right with God if you refuse to forgive others. You can't have both, no matter what their wrong was against you. Well, they, really, they did this and they did that, and the list is ten pieces long. So, how long was the list that you brought to Christ when he forgave you? These biblical principles of forgiveness is why Paul wrote this letter to Philemon and why the Holy Spirit included it in our Bibles. As Paul was preparing to write this letter to Philemon, I suppose that uh, he took the time to think about what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it. This is a masterpiece, a very short masterpiece, but a masterpiece nonetheless concerning forgiveness. The, the care that Paul put into this letter and the structure that Paul put into this letter is pretty much the opposite of how we might write text messages, where we have to go back and, and correct what you meant to type or ask forgiveness for what you said or things that fly off of your mind through your thumbs uh, too quickly many times. This letter I'm certain took hours for Paul to pen. As Paul considered the man he was going to ask a very large ask of, he knew certain things about Philemon um, that would be important to remind Philemon of. We may pick up some unintended pointers here from Paul in this letter on how to discuss important and uncomfortable things with people in our lives. You've, we've heard of the Oreo approach to confrontation or the sandwich approach to confrontation. Um, well, this is exactly what Paul does here in his letter to Philemon concerning forgiveness to Onesimus. Paul began his letter by stating important qualities in Philemon's life that are common to forgiving people. Then he challenged him to forgive Onesimus in spite of the wrong that Onesimus had done him. Then he ended this short letter with more words of encouragement. There's your Oreo, there's your sandwich. So what qualities did the Apostle Paul see in Philemon that can help you and me? What marks, what identifying marks make up a forgiving person? Paul has them here for us. Look at verse 5. First of all, a love for God. We'll start in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. A love for the Lord Jesus Christ is what Paul saw in his friend Philemon. People are telling me, Paul would say, how much you love God. We all know how good it feels when someone acknowledges our reputation or, or they recognize something good about us, some positive trait, 
That makes us feel good, doesn't it? When someone says, for example, I've heard how good of a teacher you are. Oh, I like this person, you know. I've heard how well you play golf. Who's been lying to you? <laughs> but it makes you feel good. I've heard how hard of a worker you are. It immediately warms us up to the person that's saying those things about us. Paul had heard from people in Colossae and Ephesus about Philemon. Paul also was presently in prison, it says in verse, at the end of the uh, book. Where are we? In verse 23. He refers to a man named Epaphras. Now, who was Epaphras? He heard from Epaphras some forgiving traits about Philemon from Epaphras. Who was Epaphras? Epaphras was Philemon's pastor in Colossae. He knew Philemon forwards and backwards, and he was telling the Apostle Paul what a wonderful person he was. And so we have this word on the street, if you will, this reputation that Paul is referring to, he had many conversations, I'm sure, with Onesimus about this very man, Philemon, who was his owner. Paul knew Philemon was a godly man and a pillar in that church, but he also knew firsthand about Philemon. He had personally led him to Christ in Ephesus years prior. This is why Paul was so thankful for Philemon. In verse 4, he mentions his thanksgiving for his friend. This is why Paul was so confident that Philemon would respond to his request enthusiastically. He was so confident because the first identifying mark of a forgiver is a love for God. He knew Philemon loved God. If you love God, it's because you have been forgiven by God and reconciled to God. If you have been forgiven by God, then you will not only have the capacity to forgive others, but the desire to forgive others. And so the first identifying mark of a forgiving person is someone who loves God. If you have a love for God, you will possess at least two interests. Listen to these two interests and see if they are identifying marks in your life. If you have a love for God, you will possess the following two interests. First, an interest in spiritual growth. Do you have an interest in spiritual growth in your life? How do you know? How do the people around you know that you're interested in spiritual growth? Well, look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Every Christian is predestined to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, right? But the question is, is that something that you're personally pursuing actively? That is God's will for us, but are you actively pursuing spiritual growth? Paul knew that Philemon was. He knew that Philemon would jump at the opportunity to grow spiritually in knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 again, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in Christ, in you for Christ. So Paul knew that Philemon was interested in spiritual growth, in attaining more knowledge concerning Christ. 
Listen to what he said in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in a knowledge of God. Is that true of you? Do you know more of God, know more of his character, know more of his word than you did, say, six months ago, a year ago? Paul wanted Philemon to have a full knowledge, not just a knowledge, but a full knowledge. Look back at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. What is he saying? Well, the word full knowledge is, comes from the Greek word epikinosis, um, and this is versus half knowledge, kenosis. Epikinosis versus gnosis. Gnosis is knowledge, epikinosis is a full knowledge. Half knowledge is stopping once you get the information in your head. Full knowledge in the Christian experience is not just a head knowledge, but experiential knowledge. It's not just learning from systematic theology books. It's applying systematic theology to your daily life. It's the difference between reading a book about fly fishing the Yakima River and actually going out onto the Yakima River and fly fishing and catching a large colorful trout in some ripple there on a fly, not a worm. All right, there's the difference. Knowledge or full knowledge. The Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that Philemon had a full knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. The second thing or interest that you will have if you love God is an interest in the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 again. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing we have, that every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Underline. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul said, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, all for the sake of Christ. So our when we are converted, our conversion comes with a built-in interest in making much of Jesus. Becoming a Christian is removing self from the throne and placing Jesus Christ there in your life. This is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. In everything you do, in everything you do, whether you eat or drink, as simple as that is, do all for the glory of Christ. If we have a decision to make, we ought to compare which option would bring the most glory to Jesus Christ. In Philemon's case, Paul was convinced that forgiving Onesimus was that thing that would bring the most glory to Christ, more than punishing Onesimus. This option would give God the most glory. For the sake of Christ, Philemon, my brother, forgive Onesimus. 
You see, forgiving one another always brings glory to Jesus. Reconciliation always brings glory to Jesus. Forsaking bitterness and anger always bring glory to Jesus. So if you're trying to decide whether or not forgiving someone would bring more glory to Jesus than withholding that forgiveness, let me clear that up for you right now. Forgiving others not only brings glory to Jesus, it's commanded by Jesus. Edmund Calamy, an old Puritan, wrote, Injuries should be written in dust, but kindness in marble. Injuries should be written in dust, but kindness in marble. The second identifying mark of a forgiver, the first identifying mark is a love for God. The second identifying mark of a forgiver, something that you need to examine yourself at right now, where you sit, is a love for people. Verse 5. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He not only loves God, this Philemon, but he loves the saints. He loves the saints. Forgiving people are forgiving because they have been forgiven. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. It's, in fact, it's first in the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the rest. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that everyone would know you are his disciples if you love one another. This is the identifying mark that was present in Philemon. What does it look like? What does this love look like? Paul tells us here. First of all, in verse 6, it's a deepening fellowship with believers. Look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. The sharing of your faith. The word sharing in our translation comes from the familiar Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. Notice that Paul defines fellowship by calling it a sharing of faith. Sharing of faith. And I think this is significant. Follow me. Christian fellowship is much more than just being together as Christian, as Christians, although that's where it must begin, right? You, you cannot fellowship with people without being with them. In our independent, self-centered culture, this doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, this is why at Sun Valley Church we use small groups to help you learn how to fellowship, how to love each other, how to depend on each other, how to sacrifice for each other. We, we want you to be able to talk openly about your love for God, about the concerns you have from Scripture in your own life, and also share the things that are burdened to you. This is called Christian fellowship. And since it doesn't come naturally to most of us, we set up a structure called small groups so that you'll meet with people and actually learn how to do this, what Paul is talking about. An identifying mark of a forgiver is someone who loves others. And it's not just loving people who you like, it's loving all others. This is an important distinction. Koinonia or fellowship is the sharing of life around the faith. Not around fly fishing, not around baseball or football. That is not koinonia. Our common faith in Jesus 
is the foundation of our friendship. This means that all of our small groups, and in fact, all Christian friendship, can and should be made up of people that aren't like you in age, in interests. These Christian friendships must be exercised by supporting and loving each other and sacrificing each other and walking through difficulties with each other. No matter what your secular interests may be or the place in life you may be found, no, these are Christian friendships. In verse 7, Paul says something amazing. Look at verse 7 with me. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you and love from your love, my brother. Now listen, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't that be an amazing way to be identified? Have you met so-and-so? They're a complete refreshment to everybody they run into. Do you know someone like that? Who's just, you want to be with them because they refresh your heart. What, what an amazing thing to be said about Philemon. The word on the street, Philemon, is that you are a great refreshment, a great encouragement to everybody in your life. The word hearts here in verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints. That, that word in the Greek is splakna. Splakna sounds kind of odd, but it means the seat of emotions. The point, Philemon cared about people. He cared deeply about what they were suffering with, the things that were concerning them. He knew their hearts. He knew their struggles. He cared about them. He cared about suffering and hurting people because they're splachna. The things that make up their being have been refreshed by you, my brother. So the, the first interest that, that uh, loving people have is a, a deepening fellowship with believers. The second interest is an interest in evangelism. You know there's these marks of love as a Christian and one is that we love other believers, that we're quick to forgive other believers, that we want to spend time with other believers. But there's also another element here, evidently, that Paul saw in, in Philemon, is that he cared about unbelievers. He cared about those who have not yet heard of or received Christ Jesus. Listen to this. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The sharing of your faith. Some scholars believe that verse 6 implies more than just Christian fellowship is in view. There's room within the original text to interpret this verse to include evangelism. Not only the sharing of your faith mutually with one another, but the sharing of your faith with those who don't have it.
You share your faith. The result of practicing Christian fellowship, the result of sharing your love for Jesus with a world, a dark world that doesn't know him yet, according to the Apostle Paul, is very impressive. The result of practicing Christian fellowship and practicing evangelism is impressive. Look what he says again is the result. And I pray that the sharing of your faith, that is mutual faith and evangelistic faith, I pray that the sharing of your faith will result in a full knowledge, an effective faith. <laughs> wow. A full knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. I don't even know what that full list looks like. Every good thing we have in Christ? I know a few things on that list, but if I would just love you more, if I would just love my neighbor who doesn't know Christ more, Paul is saying the result is a full knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. My goodness. Wouldn't you want that? Do you lack an understanding of doctrine and theology? Do you lack a fulfillment and a joy in your Christian life that you see maybe in others? Could it be that maybe you've neglected the sharing of your faith with other believers, that mutual faith, to the depth that you should? Could it be maybe that you've neglected maybe the sharing of your faith evangelistic with those around you who the Lord has actually placed you in their lives to do? Friends, we have a wonderful and amazing option and possibility in front of us to, to fully understand all good things that we have in Christ begins with mutual fellowship around our faith and sharing that with people in our lives that don't know him. Pray with me. Lord, what an encouragement. Thank you for including this amazing little book in the canon of Scripture. In our Bibles that we hold in our hands is just this, this jewel on Christian forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the things that we've heard this morning from the word that you gave the Apostle Paul for Philemon and, and plant that deep in our hearts. Help us to examine ourselves to see, in fact, if we do love God and love people as we ought, if we do desire spiritual growth, if we do desire the glory of Christ, if, if we do, in fact, desire intimate fellowship with fellow believers and uh, uh, profound concern for our lost and dying neighbors. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us as a church. Grant us these things that are so important. And without you, we cannot do them, for without you, we can do nothing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.